Good morning, afternoon, whatever, Covenant College. And we have some visitors here, yes? I'm a professor of theological studies here at Covenant. I've been here since 2001. It's good to have you visiting on campus. Um, as we were just singing and, and it was ending, I was listening to the birds and thinking, it doesn't matter what I say, this is just good, right? I can bomb and this is good. Let, let the birds sing, this is beautiful. Um, but I, I have some things for us to consider today. Uh, the, 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 this talk is gonna be addressing this particular question. Why doesn't God just instantly change me? Why doesn't God just instantly change me? So let's pray and we'll jump in. Our God, we do thank you for the beauty of this day, for the birds who want us to know that they are present. Thank you for the gift of song, for the beauty of music. Would you lift our hearts in the midst of the struggle we find ourselves in? It is in the name of the risen King we pray, amen. So because of, because of what I do, this is very hard for me. I like to walk around, so we'll see if I can stay near this mic. But because of what, what I do for a living as a, as a teacher and a writer, I get notes from folks asking about different things, really good and hard questions. They're not easy, and to be honest, they're the kind of questions a lot of us have but don't really have the courage to ask or they make us super uncomfortable. We're afraid to ask them. And just recently, just this week, I received a note and received permission to tell you this without telling you who it is, whether or not it's in our community. But it was a note from someone who'd been dealing with and is dealing with an eating disorder and has been dealing with it for years. Incredibly painful, causing all kinds of challenges for them, affecting not only their body, but also their ability to work, to socialize, to feel safe in relationships to struggle to feel known and to feel loved. They so wanted to be over this eating disorder, but the struggle with it just keeps coming up. Someone else writes about their struggle with pornography and another about their feeling of being so self-absorbed, so self and some of you might be feeling this right now, you're so self-absorbed that you can't just relax when you're with others because you're constantly self-conscious of yourself and you're exhausted by it. I don't know what your particular issues are. Maybe you find yourself dealing with an unexpected deep anger that just keeps showing up. Maybe it's a laziness and you commit yourself to getting up on time and doing your work and three days later you just find yourself watching endless hours of YouTube videos. What is it? Here's the thing. Here's the question. If God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves and others, if he doesn't want us greedy and lustful, if, he doesn't want us, if, he, if God doesn't think sinning is a good thing, why doesn't God just instantly change us? Why doesn't he instantly change me? And then, and here's where it gets even harder, because he doesn't instantly change me, I'm tempted to think he doesn't care. Or maybe he doesn't know how hard it is. So in our time together, I wanna to talk about three things. I wanna talk about process. I wanna talk about time. 
and I want to talk about efficiency. Process, time, and efficiency. Let's begin with process. You see, process matters. Standing waist deep, waist deep in kudzu. Imagine this. Good old Morty. You know who I'm talking about. Morty is waist deep in kudzu and he's out there with his notebook and pencil sketching. He has earlier visited this site where he first took photographs and now on this visit by himself for hours and hours standing waist deep in kudzu trying not to think about whatever is slithering down by his feet and, and legs. He's sketching. And eventually he will take those sketches back to his house and studio. And eventually he will turn them in, into paintings and he will start adding layers of color, of paint, building one layer upon another, building contrast and textures. And part of what I've learned through, through uh, being his friend is that it's not just adding paint, it's adding it and sometimes scraping it away and then adding more. He spends countless hours in this process, which will take normally not just hours or weeks, but often months. And the fact is so many of the underlying patterns, the intricate detail, the care he's taking to, to, to do this final creation will not be on the surface. So most viewers, when they look at the final product, will not see everything. But I will tell you, I think it's fair to say you can feel it. You can feel it. And eventually his completed art is displayed in homes, in hospitals, in museums, even at airports. Everything I said is just true there. Now, some of you know this if you're an art major, but if not, you may not know this. But if you ask my friend Jeffrey what he thinks matters most about his work, he will immediately say this, process, process. As a professor, he wants his students to learn that the process is at least as important as the finished product. And that wonder and joy are to be discovered in the, close, in the slow craft of producing an artwork. As students and as others, we want, we want finished products right away. But Morty tries to mentor you in the promise and delight of development. Learning to engage in slow and purposeful work. And I'm telling you what he's doing there echoes the creator's own careful craftsmanship. The truth is, if you're like me, many of us have difficulty with process. We don't love tedious practices, the significance of slow growth, the beauty of development. We live in, in a world of rapid download speeds. Many, most of you don't even know what AOL is and dial-up. It's got to be faster. We want instant gratification. And so we have a similar impatience. In that impatience, we wonder, God, why don't you just instantly download me? Why don't you instantly change us? I yell at my kids and I shouldn't. 
I'm trapped in self-absorption that never seems to end. My endless disorders feed my greed and my lust. Sin is not a past issue, but a present struggle for Christian believers. It takes great effort and perseverance not to give up. And so we rightly ask, when God extends his grace to our broken and needy lives, why does it, and here's its key, why does it seem that he immediately frees us? Why, why doesn't he immediately free us from our faults? It's kind of like we, we feel forgiven, but it's only that God forgives and then we're just stuck. Why are my bad habits not erased and positive virtues instantaneously produced? If God, in fact, doesn't like my sinful behaviors and attitudes, why does it feel like he just forgives me, but then that's it? Why doesn't he instantly transform us to never fall again? And as Christians, we often deal with a lot of guilt and shame in our lives because of our continued struggle with disobedience and sin. We rightly see how far we fall short of a finished product and it weighs on us. And so I want to ask in response to that, is God constantly frustrated with us? Is God actually constantly frustrated with this? Is he persistently irritated with us as his children? Or is something else going on? Might it be true that even though God does not enjoy our sin, could it be true, could it be true that God actually values process and growth and all the work that is involved and not just the final product? I have two children that are now older, but when, when Jonathan and Margot were learning to walk, right, I, what would happen if, if very early on, right, Jonathan's my oldest, I'd, I'd set him up, right, and you get him right next to the, to the couch, and he puts, his, he puts his hand on the couch, and I go about eight feet away, and I'm like, okay, Jonathan, and I'm grinning, and I'm smiling, and I'm just trying, come on, buddy, come to me, and he eventually gets the courage, right, He's kind of tubby at the time. And he, he takes a couple steps, and then what happens? Boom! Hits the ground. And you know what I do? I walk over to him, and I look at him, and I say, What are you doing? I said, Walk! That's hilarious, but some of you just felt a physical reaction to that. Now, just to be clear, I didn't do that. That's why it's funny, right? Those of you who didn't laugh, we've got deeper issues here. And yet, you know I didn't do that to my son. But that's exactly what you and I tend to think God does with us. When you and I fall, we think that God just looks at us. He was so happy to call us to himself. But when we fall, we think he's just irritated and disgusted and wants not. He just can't understand. No, no. When they fell, I would rush over to them. I would lift them up with fresh assurances and love and call them to try again. I was filled with compassion. Now, now listen, it's not because I'm indifferent to them learning to walk. I knew they needed to learn to walk. But I also totally understood the situation. 
I knew how hard it would be. I knew all the challenges that would be involved. I wanted them to walk, but I knew it was going to be hard, and I knew there would be bruises involved. But when it comes to our Heavenly Father, we would never admit it to others, but we actually tend to think very poorly of Him. We seem to believe he expects us to be instantly flawless, to never make a mistake, to never fall and hit the ground. And when we do fall, he's just frustrated and angry. Now, just think about this. Just slow down for a second. Part of this, when you think about it, you realize how crazy this is. You really think that the holy, omniscient, right, all-knowing God is naive or ignorant about the sin and the struggle in us that has deeply affected our lives? And so when, when we fall, he's like, I can, I told you not to do that. No, but subconsciously, we imagine that as Christians, all of our thoughts, words, and actions should instantly be free from ever lapsing into sin and failure. And when that happens, we also tend to think of God as a temperamental father. And here's the, here's, the, here's the test case to see if you're struggling with this, if you can relate to this. Because when this is your view, tell me if, if this feels familiar. When this is the view, then your Christian life feels heavy and burdensome rather than hopeful and promising. The Christian life is to be endured rather than enjoyed. But if we ever better understood God who abounds with compassion and grace, well, then that can change. But in order for us to have a different view, we need to go back. We need to connect the fact that God is the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. You see, God, who is the creator, created us as creatures to be finite. Some of you who've been hanging around here for a couple years know that word matters to me, right? To be finite, we're limited in space and time, but it also entails the ability to grow and to develop. But to appreciate what God is doing, we have to connect creation with recreation. You see, the spirit of creation who brings about order, there is the spirit of sanctification, who is bringing order in our lives now. God values process. So let's, let me explain more by talking about time. Think about this for a second. Is God in a rush? You feel it, class to class, assignment to assignment, you're literally frenzied. Is God in a rush? Is he in a frenzy? Actually, he doesn't need to be because he's, he's God, right? Yet for some reason, we tend to associate God and his good work with finished products. But that's not what you actually find in Scripture. Let me put it to you this way. How fast can God do something? How f it's a dumb question, right? How fast can God do something? I actually believe he's the sovereign Lord. He's the creator of everything. And I have, no I have no problem believing that God could have created everything. And I mean everything that fast. Actually, faster than that. Faster than a millisecond. That's how fast I think God could have made everything. Now, have you ever asked the question, if he could do it that way, why didn't he do it that way? 
Why didn't he just make it fast? For almost two centuries, Christians have spent so much time and energy debating how God created the world and when God created the world. Some still, still roughly follow the calculation of Archbishop James Usher, who in 1650, I don't know if you know this, but this is absolutely true. In 1650, he calculated that the world was created on October 22nd, 4004 BC. Other Christians believe the earth is probably 4.5 billion years old. But here's a surprise that I don't want you to miss. However different those results are, and they are very, very different, both of them, both of those must recognize something wonderful and wondrous about God. Even the most conservative view that says God created the world in six literal days, 6,000 years ago, even that view confesses God takes his time. Given the fact that he could have made it like that, and he didn't, whether it's six days or six trillion, process matters to God. God doesn't fret about taking his time. He actually seems to enjoy it. In fact, although God could clearly do whatever he wants, by and large, he doesn't tend to do things instantaneously. With creation, at least, God takes days. Whether those are six sunsets and sunrises or six billion years for this point is irrelevant. The fact that God could have made everything at once but doesn't but works slowly moving from one thing to the next thing as the Genesis account says, the creator is enjoying creating. He's enjoying shaping. He's enjoying sustaining what he makes. And the biblical narrative presents God working through time, not flouting it, and day after day building and growing his creation, interconnecting all the various parts. You see, he doesn't simply delight in the finished product, but also the glorious process. That's one of the reasons why after each day, God looks at what he's doing and says, oh, that's good. That's good. Even, even Adam, it says, is shaped, quote, from the dust of the ground. God could have made Adam ex nihilo, out of nothing, but that's not what he does, according to Genesis. He makes him from the dust of the ground and from divine breath. He's building his creation with care and purpose, and this truth has everything to do with your and my life. From the beginning, even before sin was an issue, God affirms and utilizes the movement of time, including the value of development and growth. Part of the goodness of the finite creation is that the infinite God doesn't rush when he works. He's always valued process. And so it shouldn't surprise us when it comes to the creator dealing with recreating his world He's comfortable with process. Let me put it this way. You may be panicked about your sin and your struggle, but let me, let me just tell you, God is not panicked. Your sin is not panicking him. He can handle it. He's got a long view. 
You see, he who began a good work will see it to completion. It's not like the overzealous person who buys a field and says, I'm going to build this house and gets it planted and starts to build it. And a month in realizes they have nowhere near the amount of money it's going to take to get this thing complete. God knows how costly it is when he redeemed you. And he will see it complete. He will never forget, but he will see you through to the end. Now, as we think about this process and learn to keep fighting, to keep hoping, to keep seeking Christ, to keep resisting sin, it can be a hard process. God's spirit is molding and shaping us. So now I don't want to just talk about process and I don't want to just talk about time, but I want to talk about efficiency. Here's a question for you, and I think this is tricky, especially given that we live in the West. Is God efficient? Is God efficient? Church buildings can be designed in different ways. And a community expresses its values through its architecture. And with that in mind, many Christians understandably ask, shouldn't a church building be as basic as possible? Use the cheapest construction possible that's allowable so that any extra money can go to missions and helping the poor. Legitimate concerns and questions. Why should we ever pay for a higher ceiling? Why spend energy and resources on landscaping? Won't asphalt and, and concrete over everything, won't that just be better and easier? Won't non-essential architectural extras, aren't those actually self-indulgence? Maybe. Here's the, here's the definition of indulgence. Having or indicating a tendency to be overly generous to or lenient with someone. Do you think God is too generous with his creation and his design of it? Is he with us? I'm not really interested in whether or not we use the word indulgent. I could take or leave that word. I don't need to defend it. But here's the point. Historians of architecture and social critics have, have, have long observed that when you take efficiency as the only criteria in constructing buildings, especially housing, often unintended consequences happen. Community housing with no positive aesthetic can actually suck the life out of those who live there. Beige wall after beige wall, prickly indoor-outdoor carpeting, narrow hallways, low ceilings, few windows, cold concrete covered outsides. They can act, as some people who live there say, like a lead blanket over the spirits of those who inhabit there. But friends, just as beauty feeds the souls of people who see it, the lack of beauty starves us of something that we have difficulty describing, but we keenly feel. We wonder, where is the life? Where is the beauty? Where is the loving process? Now here's the point. God's highest value is not efficiency. Do you know what it is? Especially in any kind of simpler me mechanistic sense. You know what God's highest value is? Love. 
love. He's more interested in beauty than speed. He's more concerned to lift our gaze, to provoke the song, to stimulate our imaginations than he is to just get things done. Now, don't get me wrong. God's not wasteful. He's not negligent. But he's purposeful. He's wise. He's patient. He's intentional as he works. Let let me back away. Think about this question. I mean, it's beautiful right now. We hear the different birds singing. You see the different colors. That's all nice. But wouldn't it have been much more efficient for God to just make everything gray and white? You know, people will paint the inside of their house. All of a room in the house is white because that way if you just buy one can of paint, you can fix any of it. Why doesn't God just make everything gray and white? A single color. He doesn't. And some of us who are shaped by a modern industrial mindset might not negatively assess God's judgment here. We might say God is is indulgent. He's wasteful. He's excessive. Think about this. Why the extravagance of a peacock's feathers or the careful complexity of an orchid, the multi-layered nature of a human voice or the transcendence of an orgasm? Sure, you can offer explanations for each of these, but does God really need to make so many colors? Does he really need to have so much diversity, so much depth, so much wonder? No. Because God is not driven by efficiency alone. Love, beauty, wonder, worship, those are the goals of God. Sometimes he's astonishingly efficient in his work. He turns water to wine. He makes dead people rise in an instant. But to be honest, often because he's compelled more by love than mere production, he takes slower routes. Exodus normally takes time. Calling for faith and growth, process has always been the normal pattern. Rather than snapping his fingers, the Father, through his word, sends the Spirit over the darkness, hovering over the turbulent waters, the Tohu Levohu in Genesis 1, while bringing order. And he's still doing that. Those of us in the West, we struggle with this. Because like me, if you're like me, you're so immersed in materialistic habits, we disproportionately value efficiency and productivity. Gary Selby tells a story of taking a group of American students to East Africa. And while they were there, they, the students noticed several people there performing a task together. And as the students gathered and talked about it, they, they were confident that, that that group of people doing that task could have been done by one person. Only one person. It could have been quicker. And they were tempted to make a moral judgment against what appeared to them to be inefficient and quote-unquote backward behavior. But Selby challenged them. He argued that while efficiency was a value in that area in East Africa, it wasn't the highest value. Other priorities, such as friendship and community, were more cherished in this instant. When students were witnessing what they thought was laziness or moral moral failure, what they were actually seeing was a different value structure. But if you're like me, I value efficiency. I value efficiency over community. 
and I've reversed it. I want to get things done, and this has caused serious self-evaluation. Love, community, and growth of character are often, though not always, at odds with efficiency. This is something God has always known and he's comfortable with. Let me, let me make sure you're tracking with me. We're close to the end. Do you know what the most inefficient thing you can do in the world is? Let me just help you. Maybe some of you are dating right now and this will. <laughs> the most inefficient thing in the world you can do is love somebody. Or love a puppy. It's the same kind of thing. To actually love another creature is so time-consuming. It requires your engagement. It requires your response. It requires your patience. Loads of patience. The artist, the author, they know all too well that efficiency is normally the enemy rather than the friend of creativity and progress. And the almighty creator... He's always been comfortable prioritizing love and growth over efficiency and check marks. And I want to be more like that. And so we discover that God has always valued process. He's comfortable taking his time. And he isn't driven by some industrial urge for efficiency. But he's driven by love, the love of the Father for his children who wants them to grow in grace and truth. Let me conclude. It's easy for you and I to grow discouraged when we think of our lives and how far short we fall of what we desire. We see both our sins and our limits. They're right in front of us. We wish that the ongoing struggles with our troublesome attitudes and addictions and actions, we wish they would just immediately end Yet you know this from your life. God does not normally just change our attitudes. He doesn't normally, although sometimes, he doesn't normally just immediately free us from our addictions. He doesn't just immediately reform all our actions instantaneously. Sometimes he does that, but that's not his normal way. Ordinarily, God changes our lives by persistently picking us up when we fall and slowly but consistently drawing us into the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, the fellowship of the Spirit, by telling us, you are not a sinner, you are a saint. That's who you are. That's where you're going. You will walk. That's who you are. In this process, he connects us with others, replacing our callousness with compassion, our hatred with love, our fears with hope, Beloved, do not lose heart. He who began a good work in you, he will, not hypothetical, he will see it to completion. Don't forget, God most often chooses to do this by slow and consistent work in our lives and through his church, through his people. Never forget, the triune God values process. He's comfortable taking his time. And he is driven by love. He will not let you go. Do not lose heart. Let me pray. Our God, it is easy for us to say that you value process and that you take your time and that you are driven by love. 
but 24 hours from now, it is hard for us to remember and to believe it. You know all of the heartbreak and the struggle and the deep lingering sins and temptations among us here. Would you give us renewed hope by your spirit? Would you help us to have the eyes to see what you're doing? Because we know you're present and working. So help us to see, help us to hear what is in fact happening. We pray this in the name of the one who is not just crucified, but raised and who has given us his spirit. Amen.